On December 27, 1912, in snowy Boston, we learn there were about 2,500 people in attendance at the annual meeting of the American Historical Association at Symphony Hall, though only 450 of those were AHA members. The excited crowd was there to hear a speech by the president of the group at the end of his term, and that was former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. His talk was titled History as Literature, and he began by asking whether history should be classified as science or as literature, as the Theodore Roosevelt Center tells us. In his speech, Roosevelt contends literature may be defined as that which has permanent interest because both of its substance and its form, aside from the mere technical value that inheres in a special treatise for specialists. For a great work of literature, there is the same demand now that there has always been, and in any great work of literature, the first element is great imaginative power. The imaginative power demanded for a great historian is different from that demanded for a great poet, but it is no less marked. Such imaginative power is in no sense incompatible with minute accuracy. On the contrary, very accurate very real and vivid presentation of the past can come only from one in whom the imaginative gift is strong. The industrious collector of dead facts bears to such a man precisely the relation that a photographer bears to Rembrandt. There are innumerable books, that is, innumerable volumes of printed matter between covers, which are excellent for their own purposes, but in which imagination would be as wholly out of place as in the blueprints of a sewer system or in the photographs taken to illustrate a work on comparative osteology. But the vitally necessary sewer system does not take the place of the Cathedral of Reims or of the Parthenon, and the greatest mass of data, although indispensable to the work of a great historian, is in no shape or way a substitute for that work. History taught for a directly and immediately useful purpose to pupils and the teachers of pupils is one of the necessary features of sound education in democratic citizenship, a book containing such sound teaching, even if without any literary quality, may be as useful to the student and as creditable to the writer as a similar book on medicine. I'm not slighting such a book when I say that once it has achieved its worthy purpose, it can be permitted to lapse from human memory, as a good book on medicine, which has outlived its usefulness, lapses from memory. But the historical work, which does possess literary quality, may be a permanent contribution to the sum of human wisdom, enjoyment, and inspiration. The writer of such a book must add wisdom to knowledge and the gift of expression to the gift of imagination. Words of Theodore Roosevelt in a talk titled History as Literature. What's wonderful for us to learn is that young Brian Carso would wander through Sagamore Hill, Theodore Roosevelt's home on Long Island, when he was an impressionable lad, no doubt imagining what it might have been like when Roosevelt gathered a key group of political leaders there at Sagamore the year before his AHA speech, December 1911, to determine strategies for a Roosevelt run for the Republican presidential nomination. Hello, folks. Heard 
the jokes that the wise ones crack. They say it is a fact that Teddy can't come back. Just see him fling in the ring his old campaign hat. It's just to show them all you know that he is coming back. He's coming back. Yes, he's coming back. Back to the White House from This whole USA and prosperity. Once more, we will see. So get out and shout and just noise it about that he's coming back. A song by Joe Jordan, written in anticipation of a Teddy Roosevelt run for the Republican presidential nomination in 1912. We will soon take note that walking in the actual footsteps of history makers like Roosevelt is something important to Brian Carso, who from an early age felt the pull between history as science and history as literature, the way one of his early inspirations, Theodore Roosevelt, has just laid out. Dr. Carso is Associate Professor of History and Pre-Law Program Director at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania. He has worked as an attorney at a law firm in New York, and he is a member of the American Historical Association, the organization addressed in 1912 by Theodore Roosevelt. In addition to his scholarly writings, Dr. Carso has just released a work of historical fiction titled Gideon's Revolution, issued by Cornell University Press. He will talk about the novel and read from its chapters, this Thursday evening on the Misericordia campus just outside Wilkes-Barre. Brian Carso stopped in at the WVIA studios to talk with us about his passion for history and telling stories and where it all began. You mentioned story. Story is so important, not just to, to children and how we learn, but to telling history as well. And so I think that's a great place to start. And when I was young, I grew up on Long Island near the house, uh, a few miles away from where Theodore Roosevelt had his house. And I think probably that's what got me really into history. I was kind of a Teddy Roosevelt aficionado as a young kid because we'd go to his house. And, you know, when you're young, you model yourself on people. And this person who went and was intelligent and wrote books and explored the world and was in the arena which I think is such an important idea. This book we're going to talk about today is about American history and what it means to be in the arena and some of the civic virtues and democratic habits that we need in our society. So I think that's where I picked up a lot of that. Did you do any writing when you were in? I did in, in high school. Well, in junior high and high school. And in fact, in high school, I convinced my 11th grade English teacher for a term paper rather than writing something academic to let me do a short story. So I wrote a short story in high school and I immediately thought I was the next Hemingway, I, which I wasn't, <laughs> but it felt good to think that. Where did you wind up and how did you gravitate to actually studying history then? Yeah, it was a bit of a circuitous route. I was an English major as an undergraduate and then I went and got a master's degree in American history because I loved history too. Uh, and then I had to make a choice. I was interested in becoming a historian. I was interested in being a lawyer. So I went to law school, but I studied legal history in law school, and I was very interested in that. And that's really where my interest in 
what will eventually become this novel in treason. I wrote a law review paper about the treason clause of the Constitution, which is the only criminal law in our foundational document. And I wanted to know, well, why? What was so important about issues of loyalty and so forth to the framers? And then I practiced law for about four years in a big New York firm and then decided I did want to go back to history. So I went back to graduate school for a Ph.D., and, and my dissertation advisor was a professor at Boston University Law School, so I had a, a real tie-in between American political and cultural history as well as legal history. As you suggest, if you're exploring the concept of treason, you tell us that in that time when you were exploring the concept, what's the name on everybody's lips? Benedict Arnold, right? So I wrote a kind of a legal history back in 2006 about the meaning of treason in the United States from the Revolution to the Civil War. So, of course, there's a chapter on Benedict Arnold, as there must be. And that, when I was doing the research for that, I discovered that there was a, uh, a little-known secret spy mission. So, of course, it's little-known. It's a spy mission conceived by George Washington himself to capture Benedict Arnold after Arnold's treason at West Point. And I thought, I made a note to myself, this could be a nice short academic article, or it could be a pretty cool historical novel. So I went with the historical novel. And that's, it's that story about this, this secret mission to capture Benedict Arnold that's the centerpiece of this novel. In so doing, you are telling a story that's compelling because it's secret and will they get discovered or will they succeed? There are always those things that move a plot along. You know how it ends. Yeah, Erica, there's two real tensions, I think, in the book. And one is, what is the character of Benedict Arnold? What is the character flaw? Arnold was our greatest battlefield general. Any number of people said that if he had died at Saratoga, where he was gravely wounded, we'd be celebrating his birthday and there'd be statues in every town of Benedict Arnold. He'd be one of the great heroes of the revolution. But instead, after Saratoga, he eventually becomes commandant of West Point and plots with the British to give up West Point, which was a critical place on what was then the superhighway of the Northeast, the Hudson River. Uh, and it would have been a devastating loss to the Americans. Uh, so he becomes our greatest traitor in American history instead. And so what was it about Benedict Arnold? You know, certainly he had complaints. Politics were brutal back then. And he didn't get promoted when he thought he should have. He was accused of commingling his personal money with government money and, and all these things that may have been right or may have been wrong. But other people had those same problems, too. Other generals had those problems, and they did not commit treason. So what was it about Arnold, his character? And I explore that in this novel. And then the other great tension is nobody wanted to be a spy back in the... Revolutionary War period. It was a dishonorable enterprise. In fact, one of the things that makes Nathan Hale a notable figure is that he was willing to put himself in this position where really there, there's no, no winner. As, as my character says in the novel, if, if you're successful in your mission, nobody ever hears about it. If you fail in your mission, you hang from the nearest tree. So there was nothing in it for anybody. So those are the two big tensions in the novel. You talk about tensions in the novel, Brian, but what about tensions in the novelist between the historian and the fiction writer? 
You know, one of the reasons I found it fascinating to tell this story as a novel, I should say I have asked people who write historical novels. I've met a lot of them over the number of years. And I always ask, the first question out of my mouth is, how much do you stick to the facts? And uh, it's the whole spectrum. Some say, well, I use the historical facts to whatever extent it helps me tell the story. And then on the other end of the spectrum is people like myself. And I say, I want to start with all the historical facts I know. And in this case, it's, it's limited because it's a spy mission. But then I want to use kind of an educated imagination to fill in those gaps so I can tell the story. And with regard to the characters, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm fond of something that the great historical novelist Hilary Mantel said. She said, if you want to imagine not just what the past was, but what it felt like from the inside, then you pick up a novel. So a novel helps us kind of identify with, you know, the emotional characteristics of people, not just this happened on such and such a date or this army went here or there. But what did it feel like to be a human being in that moment? And you tell something very intriguing about getting to know, getting inside Benedict Arnold, that you followed in his trail, in his path. You walked the streets that he wore. You wound up telling the lovely story about where you were when you began this novel. Well, yes, Arnold was born and raised in Norwich, Connecticut. And um, I was invited by some folks in the historical society there to come and visit. And I spent the day walking around. It's a beautiful historic town in Norwich, looking at some of the the old houses that existed at the time that Arnold was walking the streets and the taverns. Uh, I looked at church records and merchant records that are still in the historical society there. Walked around this magnificent colonial burial ground that has about a thousand headstones all from the 1700s, including Benedict Arnold's mother and several of his siblings. And then I was staying for a couple nights in a house called the Lathrop Mansion that was a house owned by Benedict Arnold's cousin. And when a number of tragedies befell the Arnold family, Arnold was called back from the private boarding school where he, as a young 12, 13, 14-year-old, was essentially being trained to go to Yale and become a up kind of an upper class citizen when a number of his siblings passed away from disease that would roll through towns like they did then. And his father became a, a severe alcoholic. And you can only imagine, in part because of the grief of losing these children, uh, Arnold was called back home and he wasn't going to go to Yale anymore. And so he lived in this house that I was spending a couple nights in to learn to become an apothecary. And so there I was in this house where I could imagine Benedict, young 14, 15-year-old Benedict Arnold walking in the hallways or standing in the very room I was. And it was around 10, 11 o'clock at night. And I got out my laptop and I started writing right there. And this was kind of fun. But over a couple of years, went to every place I could go to walk in Arnold's footsteps. So not just Norwich, Connecticut, but New Haven, Connecticut, where he subsequently moved as a young man before he joined the militia to fight in the revolution. I went up to Quebec City and uh, got together with a military historian up there, and we traced all the places where Arnold was in the winter of 1775-1776 when Arnold and Richard Montgomery led a raid on Quebec City, saw the very spot where Arnold was wounded for the first time uh, in Quebec City, 
Saratoga, Ticonderoga, down the Hudson Valley where Arnold escaped, where John Andre tried to escape, Lower Manhattan, where where the coffee houses were that were actually fronts for some of the American spies. It's great fun to go and find all these places and try to get inside Arnold's head. Some novels have maps. You don't include one, but surely you followed some. And you somewhere along observed whether you took pictures or not, but you get the the space in which these characters that you're creating are moving. That was a lot of fun. And a lot of it is consulting old maps and old journals, letters that people wrote to find out what was where. You know, you go to Boston, for instance, and there's still, there's the Freedom Trail and there's a sense of what it looked like during the American Revolution. Lower Manhattan doesn't have much of that left, but if you know where to look, Lower Manhattan has a fascinating Revolutionary War era history. And so to go walk those streets, but to have found old maps and old descriptions of anyone who's seen the the play Hamilton is familiar with the tailor who was a spy for the Americans, Hercules Mulligan, best name ever, Hercules Mulligan, where I wanted to find out where was Hercules Mulligan's tailor shop? So got out some maps and, and letters and journals and was able to figure out exactly and walk to that spot. And it's just a street corner now, but it's kind of neat to say that was Hercules Mulligan's tailor shop or to go to Rivington's Coffee House, where Rivington had a coffee house. He also published a newspaper and it was believed by everyone in New York that he was sympathetic to the British while the British occupied New York. But in fact, Rivington was a spy for the Americans. And George Washington, after the war was over, very no, because how do you, people hated Rivington because he, they believed he was working with the British. But then Washington shows up and makes a very public display of putting his arm around Rivington and walking down the street so that everyone knew after the war that he was one of our guys. Great fun to go find those stories. You mentioned the coffee houses and the fronts and so forth, and you have a number of gathering scenes. And those are so, I think they're so revealing. It's not just, again, window dressing. We learn a lot about cultural dynamics. But I love the fact that you use song in those settings because the choices of the songs that you use and so forth are revealing. And that was so important. I mean, if you're on a one scene you're talking about, it's near Christmas time on some British naval vessels as Benedict Arnold is is leading 30 British ships to raid Richmond, Virginia. And it's right around Christmas and they start to sing Christmas carols or beggars from the beggars opera. There's a scene there. But, you know, we didn't have cell phones and screens that they were carrying around. And so song was an enormously important way of entertaining, but also developing camaraderie. We see in one of the scenes where they're singing from the beggars opera, the Hessian soldiers who are fighting with the British don't really hang out with the British soldiers, but they have some song in common. So they start singing together. And that happened all the time. You read about this when you read period journals and letters. When you talk about the beggar's opera, it's just a comment. You're not hitting us over the head, but here we are with the civilized stage and theater and so forth, and then we're going to go lay waste to... Yeah, it's a real contradiction to be singing God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen a couple nights before you go burn Richmond. And there's that lovely way you use blow ye the trumpets. And that's very important, isn't it? It is. The character's name, the narrator, 
who is the connecting thread throughout the whole story. He knows Benedict Arnold at Saratoga and sees him as a great hero. And it's because he knows Benedict Arnold and he gets to know Arnold when Arnold is recovering for four months in an Albany hospital, military hospital that actually existed after he's severely wounded at Saratoga. Gideon Wheatley gets to know Benedict Arnold and it's because he becomes friends with Arnold that he's sent on this spy mission to go capture Arnold after Arnold's treason. And that's the great tension for, for Wheatley. But of course, his name, people will be familiar with the, the scene in the Bible of, you know, Gideon, blow ye the trumpets. And without giving anything away, there is a theme throughout the novel of what knowledge of history and telling stories and and blow ye the trumpets by the end is something of a metaphor for telling our stories and i think that it makes a an important point to why i hope readers at the end understand that they are being addressed we are being addressed by gideon wheatley as he tells these stories and why it's so important that we know our history and the way you unfold the scene where the students ask, Gideon, did you know spies? And suddenly everybody wants to hear the stories. Yeah, I mean, that is a, it's an important part of the whole novel, I think, is that idea that we want to know where we came from. And so the novel ends uh, about 20, 21, 22 years after the, the spy plot and Wheatley is in a position to tell some young people stories about the American Revolution. And the young people want to know about it because what is our history? What did we inherit? What are the ideas we inherited? And in our, in our moment in history, I, I think today it's so important. It has always been important to know what are the ideals that we inherited. If I may, Eric, one of the things that inspired me to write this was that In 1857, four years before the American Civil War broke out, Washington Irving, the first really internationally famous American author who we'll all know as having written about Rip Van Winkle and the the legend of Sleepy Hollow and so forth. But late in his life, in 1857, he wrote a biography of George Washington. And the longest chapter in that biography was 60 pages about Benedict Arnold. And Washington Irving said specifically that he wrote that story about Arnold and the larger piece about George Washington to remind people as these sectional tensions divided America just prior to the Civil War about our obligations as citizens, about the promise that the founders and the framers made that we lived in a democratic republic and that this required great care to see that it continued. And so I think the story of Benedict Arnold has been told throughout American history for any number of reasons, but it's a useful story for us today, too, to think about loyalty, not to an individual, but to the ideas of democracy, to consensus building, to compromise, to prudence, to bipartisanship, to those civic virtues and democratic habits that make self-government possible. My gosh, we just, you know, you looked at the news and read the paper and you say, we need more of that. And I hope our history can remind us of those obligations. Would you be able to read something with both Gideon and Benedict included? Um, So this scene takes place. uh, There are two big battles at Saratoga. And during the first one, the narrator, Gideon Wheatley, is wounded. It turns out not terribly badly. 
But he's an educated man. He can write. And so the doctors ask him to stay in the wards. And this was a huge hospital with 500 beds that was built during the French and Indian War by the British in Albany, New York. And it was used during the American Revolution. And so Wheatley is there writing letters and, and trying to build up the morale of soldiers who have been wounded. And in the second battle of Saratoga, Arnold is gravely wounded. His leg is shattered in several places. And he's brought to the hospital. And the doctors ask Wheatley to basically stick around with Arnold, attend to him, and try to raise his morale. So one of the things Wheatley does is he tells Arnold that at the end of that battle where Arnold was wounded, General Burgoyne, the British general, has surrendered. And here's Wheatley talking about his conversation with Benedict Arnold. I did not speak any more about the surrender, but the next day Arnold raised the topic. Do you know what Gates and Burgoyne did after the sword was surrendered? He asked. No, sir. I suspect, as would be proper, that Gates invited Burgoyne and his brigadiers and regimental commanders to join him and his officers in his marquee tent. For what purpose, I asked. To show the honorable intentions of gentlemen, he replied. I presumed he wanted to talk, so I asked him, in what manner? A banquet, he answered. Nothing less than a banquet. There would be boards set across barrels, and on them would be the best meal the army could gather. Imagine boiled mutton, a goose, ham, beefsteaks. To feed them before their next long journey, I asked, knowing there was more to it. To celebrate valor and courage, he said, flat on his back, looking upward at the ceiling. There would be glasses set out, and liquor, probably rum. Burgoyne would offer a toast, maybe to Gates, maybe to General Washington. Gates would return the honor. I imagine he would toast the king's health. All the officers would commingle, the British and Germans talking with the Americans, observing all possible niceties, complimenting the demeanor of their respective armies, outdoing each other in displaying the virtues of gentlemen, gentlemen who go to war, gentlemen who face each other on the battlefield, gentlemen who kill one another, but gentlemen who know that the battlefield is the seedbed of valor, where a man's soul and his character are on display for the world to witness. He turned his head to face me. You know this, Captain, as well as any. The battlefield is the theater of courage, and as much as we fight to vanquish the enemy, we fight to establish our honor. Arnold turned his gaze back toward the ceiling. Mind you, the broth suits me fine. I do not need the fancy meats, nor the pompous conversation. His eyes shot around the room, looked at me, then rested back on the ceiling. But they should know who led the fight. They should know who beat them. A gust of wind blew against the window. You did, sir, I said, but I was only one voice. I like that part because I think it captures the disillusionment that Arnold couldn't achieve that honor. Even though he's the great hero of Saratoga, he is deprived of that honor that he so desperately needed to restore. Dr. Brian Carso, Associate Professor of History and Pre-Law Program Director at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania, just outside Wilkes-Barre. We have just heard Dr. Carso reading from his new work of historical fiction titled Gideon's Revolution, issued by Cornell University Press. Carso will talk about the novel and read from its pages this Thursday, October 26th at 7 p.m. on the Misericordia campus just outside Wilkes-Barre. For more information on the web, 
briancarso.com, briancarso.com, C-A-R-S-O.com, or cornellpress.cornell.edu. The book is Gideon's Revolution, a novel published by Cornell University Press and written by Brian Carso, who is an historian and as well a pre-law program director at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania. For more information, briancarso.com, briancarso.com, Brian Carso reading from his new novel and speaking about Benedict Arnold and Gideon Wheatley and the others from his novel, Gideon's Revolution. And that's Thursday evening at 7 o'clock at Misericordia University in Dallas, just outside Wilkes-Barre. For directions to the campus, misericordia.edu, misericordia.edu.